Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach. With me is my usual co-host, the Deputy Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine, retired Navy Captain Bill Hamlet. Bill, hello once again. Hey, Ward. It's uh, great to be here in June. I mean, February. It's like 80, know, it's 80 degrees in Annapolis. Gorgeous. It's sunny outside. I have spring fever to the I max. I have a lot of spring fever, definitely. Yeah. Uh, but it's great to be here. So last week we talked about the... We kind of did our West recap with Megan of USNI News, uh, talked a lot about budget and whatnot. Um, this week, we should probably get right to it. We've got a guest uh, on the phone who's uh, author of one of the uh, features in this month's Proceeding Magazine. So why don't we uh, introduce our guest, Bill? Okay. Yeah. So um, the February issue, we've talked about a couple of the articles. Uh, this week's is uh, Have We Forgotten How to Fight by Captain Pete Pagano, U.S. Navy Retired. Uh, Captain Pagano was the uh, commanding officer or the commander of the Kearsarge Amphibious Ready Group. Uh, he was Commodore of Amphibious Squadron 4. That was uh, in the 2010 to 2012 time frame. Prior to that, he served uh, as the commanding officer of the USS Carr, FFG-52. He served in uh, various Joint Navy training assignments throughout his career. And in his uh, post-Navy career, he is working at uh, Tactical Training Group Atlantic, down at Dam Neck uh, in Virginia Beach. Uh, so he is still, you know, in the mix uh, doing... He knows of what he speaks. He does. He's still and, living and it. What Walking he writes. the walk. So, uh, what he writes, yes. So, Pete, it's great to have you on the podcast. Bill, thank you. Bill and Ward both. Thanks uh, Thanks for having me aboard. Our pleasure. So, Pete, uh, in the early part of the feature uh, that's titled, Have We Forgotten How to Fight? Like Bill said in this month's proceedings, you say strike groups do not train to take advantage of speed, maneuver, and offense, but instead are admonished to, quote, not cede the battle space as if they are ground units holding a hill. Can you expound on what you mean by that? Yes. Uh, the, the mindset, really, it's driven by the operations that we've been doing since uh, 9-11-2001, and that is uh, fighting or operating, I should say, uh, from uh, offshore sea bastions to support the uh, the troops in contact ashore. So it has uh, fostered, I believe, in my own opinion, it has fostered this mindset of a very kind of ground-centric uh, mentality in, uh, in our approach to naval operations. And uh, that that is at odds with our traditional uh, advantages that are inherent with naval operations, which is that speed, maneuver, deception, uh, that, that inherent maneuverability is really what is the advantage that naval forces bring to the fight. I think the fact that we've been uh, tethered to uh, supporting troops ashore in this kind of static counterinsurgency uh, type of uh, war we've uh, found ourselves in, uh, as a result, we've really, uh, an entire generation of naval officers have uh, not been exposed to traditional blue water uh, naval operations and uh, naval uh, warfighting uh, doctrine. So, uh, Pete, it was interesting that the timing of your article getting into the February issue, uh, I think we accepted your article. Uh, you submitted it sometime last fall. It takes us a couple months to get uh, an article, particularly a, a feature article, into a, a proceedings. Um, and by the time we got you published, um, we you know, sort of coincidentally had a piece by Admiral uh, Swift, the 
Pacific Fleet Commander, who also spoke at West two weeks ago and has since written a, uh, a second article. But in the February issue, we have your your piece called Have We Forgotten How to Fight? And right after it is Admiral Swift's article called Master the Art of Command and Control. And in many ways, they're, they go great together um, because you're both talking about war at sea, about, the, you know, the Navy's traditional um, quest for sea control, uh, and particularly how are you going to do that against a, a peer competitor, right? And that was uh, the focus this year of the conference out at West uh, two weeks ago. We also have another article by Admiral Swift that we're going to publish, we are publishing in the March issue, uh, which will be out next week. Uh, and and you both uh, talk in your articles about uh, Admiral Hank Mustin, uh, Hammer and Hank Mustin, the second fleet commander, and about his fleet fighting instructions. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and also about how uh, you guys at TAC Traegerland now, as you think about training the Navy towards the peer competitors, uh, whether it be Russia and the Baltics or the Eastern Mediterranean, the Black Sea, or the Chinese Navy in the South China Sea, you know, how does that legacy of thinking about war at sea, thinking about um, a peer competitor and about sea control, um, how, do, how does that play now? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, I, uh, I'm a great admirer of uh, Admiral Swift. I've, uh, I've read all his uh, Swift signals and uh, his own uh, fighting instructions that he's put together, as well as uh, various conops that he's, uh, he's produced uh, while in command uh, out in the Pacific there. Uh, so uh, it was uh, very uh, uh, gratifying to me to have my article next to his. And uh, coincidentally, uh, a few, uh, I think it was last year, I had uh, Proceedings published a small uh, essay of mine regarding the LCS, the Independence Class, uh, LCS and using amphibious operations. And coincidentally or not, that appeared side by side with uh, a piece Admiral Swift had at the time, uh, a longer article in Proceedings regarding the LCS and the great work uh, they were doing out there in the Pacific. So uh, kind of neat to have that, uh, not once but twice, having, having that juxtaposition with, uh, with one of his uh, pieces. Uh, regarding uh, Admiral uh, Mustin's fighting instructions, I distinctly remember as a, uh, a uh, ensign on Richmond K. Turner in 1986 uh, being in CIC and the operations officer uh, walking up to me and dropping the Second Fleet fighting instructions uh, in front of me at the DRT table and saying, you got to read this. <laughs> and I did. And at the time, I thought it was great because it harkened back to, uh, you know, all, everything I joined the Navy for. You know, it, was, it seemed like something right out of uh, Bull Halsey's uh, World War II uh, battle orders, you know. And uh, it was clear, concise. It uh, it, in plain English, it spelled out how we were going to fight the Soviets, and uh, that was uh, it, it. Captured my uh, my imagination at the time as a young ensign, and it was really something I never really forgot. Uh, uh, fast forward to uh, it was approximately uh, 2012, 2013, when I was the chief of staff at Navy Warfare Development Command, and uh, we were you know we were starting to wrestle with uh, issues such as. Uh, you know, uh, anti-access area area denial, uh, operating in a denied uh, comms environment, electromagnetic maneuver warfare, all those things. And uh, Admiral Kraft, who was the commander at NWDC at the time, and myself and others said, you know, 
uh, we've done this before. You know, we all grew up in in this Navy, and uh, so we dug up uh, Admiral Mustin's Second Fleet fighting instructions. We distributed it to uh, to uh, the departments uh, on staff, and we actually were able to get Admiral Mustin uh, into the building to uh, speak at one of our uh, monthly waterfront seminars that we were doing at the time. And that was about, I guess, maybe three years before he passed away. Uh, so that that was fantastic. So my my association with the fighting instructions was, was something you know real and, and tangible. So um, what are we doing here at Tac Land? Well, I think uh, there's been a realization across the uh, the Navy that we do need to uh, kind of refocus uh, and and calibrate our mindsets to a, a peer competitor uh, potential naval conflict. And so we're starting to emphasize things like uh, mission-type orders and uh, the initiative of the commander, certainly electromagnetic maneuver warfare and uh, the whole ma- mantra of speed, maneuver, deception. So that's, that's, uh, that's starting to uh, creep into uh, our training, into uh, uh, the war games we shape for the, uh, for the training that the uh, strike groups and ARCs uh, uh, come through here for. Uh, so, you know, as with any, uh, any uh, large organization, uh, the cultural change is, uh, doesn't happen, doesn't turn on a dime, uh, but certainly uh, there's a, that realization and there's movement in that direction to, uh, to start injecting that into our scenarios and the training we do. Pete, that's great. Um, so a couple of things that uh, jump out at me, uh, again, the, the, the theme this year at West was about near pure competition and the, the need to be able to fight and contest uh, sea control. Uh, and General Neller brought up a point, uh, you know, from his perspective, he had a couple great quotes that, uh, that many in the audience just, uh, just loved, particularly those that are like you and, and me, who can remember, and Ward, who can remember the, uh, the Cold War and remember that's what we've what we trained to. We did not assume that we were going to have sea control. We assumed that we were going to have to fight for it. Um, And so General Neller, one of his quotes was, uh, you know, we have to think, we have to realize that we may need to fight to get to the fight, right? And that that Marines aren't just going to, you know, embark a ship or embark an aircraft and, you know, and and go somewhere and then deploy to the FOB and then move from the FOB out into the fight, that we're going to ride on ships that are going to have to fight you know, to get somewhere, to get through the, the, the oceans of the world uh, and to get into the battle space. And that fight that the Navy is going to have to have to get the amphib forces forward uh, is going to be a contested one. And he even said, I think we need more fast attack submarines because, you know, we, we're going to need to uh, be able to get the amphibs there. And doing so is going to require a screen. It's going to require, uh, you know, making sure that amphibs can can go where there's not a, a submarine threat. So it was it was really interesting. We had on the the podcast about a month ago. We had a young uh, marine officer who's working down at Camp Lejeune, uh, Captain McGee, uh, who wrote about uh, the exercise scenario called the the Treasure Coast, and he called it you know, the scenario has no close, right? Right. Um, and and. So uh, you and I are very familiar with that scenario, uh, all the East Coast uh, uh, training in the Atlantic Fleet revolves around this uh, fictional area called the Treasure Coast where countries have, uh, you know, fictional uh, names like Garnet and Amber and Amberland uh, and Sapphire um, and the 
orders of battle and the way that they those militaries operate is uh, you know based representationally on some country or or amalgamation of threat countries in the world how how is that changing in the training that you're doing that your boss is doing at uh, strike group four uh that that uh, strike groups and expeditionary strike groups are doing during their comp 2x's or jtfx's and in the scenarios that you're running through uh for warfare commanders and uh, and and uh, composite warfare commanders at tax trade land yeah so that's uh i tell you the, the treasure coast uh model and is really it's a brilliant brilliant design because it is tremendously flexible and dynamic so uh by that uh, i mean uh, you know as uh, world events change we factor that in we the larger we uh because really it's mostly csg4 that uh striker four that that uh is the keeper of that uh treasure coast scenario and model but what what happens is countries the geopolitical situation within the fictitious countries of treasure coast get uh, adjusted and modified to reflect real-world trends. So uh, what you see in the scenarios uh, uh, of late and going forward is more of that near-peer presence. So uh, right now it is uh, uh, not necessarily open conflict with them, but they are now, uh, uh, we're operating now in, in this Treasure Coast scenario, we're operating in proximity to these uh, peer competitors and near-peer competitors. So that, that's reflected in the, in the scenarios. And then there's also uh, advanced uh, hostility phases where uh, a portion of that scenario uh, does come to grips with uh, the uh, near-peer and peer threat uh, and in a high-end uh, naval uh, engagement. So. Uh, the, the beauty of Treasure Coast is it's kind of infinitely flexible. Although the country, the country names may change, may uh, remain the same. The uh, geopolitical uh, conduct of those countries and their order of battle uh, is uh, is flexible, dynamic, and reflects these trends that we're starting to uh, starting to see. So, how are you guys? Um, how are you playing opposition forces, op forces, uh, because? Having um, having representational op for in live fire exercises or just in live exercises with virtual weapons, if you will, um, that that represent you know double digit SAMs, for example, SA tens, SA twenties, S four hundred, the the long range uh, supersonic, maybe even hypersonic over the horizon uh, anti ship cruise missiles. Um, you know, uh, upgunned AIP, perhaps uh, air-independent uh, diesel submarines, um, uh, with with anti-ship cruise missiles. How are how are you guys uh, bringing that level of threat to both your scenarios at Tax Trigger Land and then uh, to Com Two Xs and JTFXs? Well, and and that's where the uh, the LVC live virtual constructive and the, and the synthetic training comes into play because that that's really where uh, that high end uh, threat can be modeled. Uh, you know, it's not perfect yet, and there's some limitations just based on the degree of uh, classification. Uh, but uh, you know, as we're we're starting to model those high end threats. Um, we're not completely there yet, but uh, we're making some pretty good strides in being able to replicate synthetically that type of uh, that type of threat. 
So in the article, you quote the Admiral Mustin's fighting orders. Uh, in, let me just read it. In a fight, the winner will be the Navy whose ships can take major damage and still maneuver and shoot to hit. It means that your officers and men have to keep functioning professionally, even when they have seen ships blown up and sunk and when many people have been killed and horribly wounded, when the survivors are scared and exhausted, when decks are red hot, lights are out, and equipment destroyed. Such are the standards to which we must train. So how do, how do we do that, um, you know, when we talk about synthetic uh, and, and uh, you know, what we're able to do during interdeployment training cycle? Well, um, I say bring back ref train first and foremost. Uh, and I, uh, I, I kind of allude to that in the article about how that was uh, such a great uh, training tool and experience for the crew. I mean, really... You went through Reftray, I have, and the, the ship's crew comes away from that, I think, uh, more cohesive, more confident that they can handle anything that's thrown at them. Uh, and I think that's just a, uh, an invaluable tool that we need to take a look at. Now, that's, of course, down at the unit level of training. So that's, that's uh, not where, you know, that's not my rice bowl at this point, not my lane, but... Uh, just Pete Pagano's personal uh, opinion is that Reftray or something like that needs to uh, needs to be looked at at uh, possibly uh, elevating the intensity of ULT. And you're hearing that discussion at the uh, the TICOM level uh, and uh, and other levels of uh, higher Navy that you know ULT needs to be uh, more rigorous as well. Uh, so. Uh, now, from our perspective here, yeah, how do you how do you uh, experience that synthetically? You know, um, I remember when I was in uniform and subsequently uh, the training audience is always encouraged during the course of one of these synthetic events, you know, it's, that's being held on board their ships where they're not in our modules, but fighting the synthetic uh, fight from their ship, uh, is always been encouraged to, to uh, take the scenario to its uh, logical uh, point. So in other words, if synthetically their ship just took a missile hit, well, that should trigger then the, the ship's individual training teams, damage control training teams, et cetera, to uh, then impose a uh, actual damage scenario uh, that the ship's crew would have to fight through. That, I think, is, is uh, all goodness, and it just brings the, the crew into this synthetic uh, training event. So it's not just a, hey, it's those guys in CIC that are uh, doing the training. It's a whole crew event. Yeah, you so, say ref tray, I think sucking rubber as an aviator. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, uh, just sweating my, uh, my tail off uh, doing some sort of damage control uh, evolution or uh, making sure my CCOLs were accurate, you know? Right, right. Uh, setting setting yoke uh, as, you know, that's that quite a passage. I like it. Um, so, Pete, in another part of the article, you, you say learning how to fight a naval war again will necessitate a service-wide cultural renaissance that emphasizes that the Navy is first, last, and foremost a war-fighting fleet whose purpose is to go in harm's way and defeat the nation's enemies. So ha have we somewhere between 9-11, like you have described, uh, you know, CSG's drive to some modlock position and, and launch cast sorties by and large, um, not exactly a war at sea. Um, and so ha ha how have we lost in terms of the training, interdeployment training cycle, our way? Is it is it no longer high peer or high threat? Uh, did, did we lose our way somewhere in the middle there? Well, you know, 
time is is the uh, the precious resource, and it's finite. So if you have uh, X number of things competing for your time, uh, and you don't have a driver to uh, prioritize this other thing, then of course something's going to fall off the table. So, you know, the uh, the blue water fleet versus fleet fight uh, training that that has uh, by necessity, I guess has fallen off the table because time is and resources are, are finite and there's these other there's been these other competing priorities which have been exacerbated I believe by the uh, fewer numbers of ships uh, again going back to when I was a JO in the uh, in the mid to late 80s uh, we we worked hard we went to sea but there was also you know weeks on end where there wasn't an inspection team coming aboard uh, or, you know, deployment was uh, at least a year plus away, and, and the CO could turn to ops and say, hey, ops, I want to go down to the North Puerto Rican op area for two weeks and, you know, train the crew and drive the ship and, you know, shoot the gun and, and the missile. And you can do that kind of internal training because you did not have a, a competing external priority. So, um you know, again, that circles back then to not enough ships because, as I mentioned in the article, we're maintaining, uh, if not uh, increasing, the operational tempo of 100-plus ships deployed at any given day with now a fleet that is less than half the size of the fleet that was doing that 15, 20-plus uh, years ago. So as a result, something's got to give. And what it has given is the kind of detailed tactical naval warfighting training uh, that we used to previously focus on. And when we had an adversary, that was a blue water adversary focusing our attention. Uh, I mentioned in the article we're a victim of our own success because the, the Soviet Union went away. And for the last 10 years at least, there has been no potential uh, blue water threat out there. Well, now we see uh, you know, nature abhors a vacuum, and we're seeing uh, peer uh, competitors rise to, uh, to prominence and uh, start arming themselves with those traditional tools of, of a blue water Navy. And so now, uh, I believe, uh, our, atten our attention has been uh, redirected to some extent. Uh, I, uh, I hope the trend continues, and I hope resources are put behind it, because I really think uh, it's not an either-or. Uh, it's not just a training issue. It's not just a cultural issue. It's all of that plus a ship numbers issue because you can't do one without the other. We need a larger Navy so that we have both the uh, time and space and capacity to not only meet our operational commitments but also train and train to the level that a professional Navy needs to train to. I think calling us a victim of our own success is a fair way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, you know, you you respond. We we've talked about this a lot on the podcast. We you you have to respond to the the crisis of the moment, right? And, right. Uh, you know, post nine eleven, uh, the as you said, the blue water Soviet Navy had gone home, and suddenly there's a uh, an existential problem of uh, you know terrorism threatening us and our allies around the world, and uh, there was a uh, a national political will to go after the the group that had you know wreaked havoc on the united states on 9-11 so uh, but it only used a subset it, of our capabilities of our capabilities right. absolutely right and, and that's and that's pete's point that that's you know, a so that's a very valid our point. muscles have atrophied 
Yeah, uh, indeed. That's a good way to put it. You brought up the point earlier about uh, electromagnetic uh, warfare, electromagnetic maneuver warfare operating in a demand, you know, a denied environment. Um, and you also brought up uh, something that Admiral Swift mentioned, and that General Dempsey, the former uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, has written about mission command and commander's intent and having clear command or clear intent so that your subordinate commanders know what you want them to do absent any more communication, right? So in this operating at sea in a bastion environment that we've been able to, where, you know, the the commander in chief can watch tactical forces do a raid in Pakistan, for example, um, we may not have that in a, in a pure adversary fight, right? It may be right. very difficult for the strike group commander to know what a DDG commander is seeing. Um, it, it may be difficult for that strike group commander to, to, to communicate with his fleet commander. Uh, so how do you guys um, wrap that into your training and in your, your warfare commander and your composite warfare commander training now for, uh, for strike groups? Well, um, we, we do just that. We, you know, we... Uh there are no easy answers. You know, we we lay out the uh, the uh, the challenge, which is what you just captured, and uh, we we emphasize that you need to uh, to to get your heads around this. Uh, first and foremost, you know, uh, from a uh, equipment standpoint, we uh, try to train them, get them in the right mindset that hey, make sure first of all, it's not a self-imposed communications denied uh, situation. So make sure you, uh, you, you troubleshoot your equipment. It's A, set up correctly. B, you troubleshoot it when there is a casualty. And we also expose them to recognizing when it's a casualty versus an external uh, denial of service, shall we say. And then being able to fight through that. Now, absent that, absent being able to fight through it, um, then, yeah, then we also emphasize the fact that orders and guidance from the commander needs to be uh, such that, absent any further communication, the, the unit or units can still go forward and accomplish the mission. And, you know, it's, uh, it's not like we can necessarily give them a, a cookbook of, uh, or a recipe that says, here's how you do that. A lot of this is going to have to be, and we, we put this out to them, uh, kind of an iterative process of the commander uh, getting with his warfare commanders and just, you know, really kind of sharing his philosophy so that they can get inside his head so that uh, when the comms go down, they know what the, they know what the commander wants and they, they can go out and do it. So it's really, it's a lot of art. It's not just science. It's not a, a checklist you can, uh, you can pursue. And it's, uh, it's, there's a lot of art to it and a lot of kind of personal communication skills and relationships that need to be built and that's you know it's kind of what we uh we do during the warfare commanders conference and and going forward is to start those creative juices flowing among the strike group staff and you know arg staff etc to get them marching down that path because that's something they really have to kind of work out themselves we try to stimulate those juices and lay, lay out to them what the challenges are they need to be thinking about. Pete, I, th- I like the fact that you used the word art a couple times there because uh, that is also something that uh, Admiral Swift mentioned in his article uh, and also talked about at West is this, the art of command and control. It's not a science uh, and the science has to be in um, support of the art of command and control and it, and it takes practice. Uh, it's, it's hard work uh, and it requires uh, that 
that commanders and their subordinate commanders understand each other, right, and understand what the mission intent is, uh, and then and then go after it hard. So uh, Captain Pete Pagano, uh, author of Have We Forgotten How to Fight in the February issue of Proceedings, starts on page 22. Uh, thank you for joining us today, and uh, thank, thank thanks, for writing, thanks for writing for Proceedings. Uh, it was great to have you on the show. My pleasure. Thank, uh, thank you both, Bill and Ward. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Okay, Pete, thanks. All righty. Bye-bye. All right, joining us now is Megan Zakelli from USNI Press. We're going to get her mic first. All right. <laughs> Pull me- it up close. Get me all set up. You guys all right, have we'll a get you fun set up. setup up here. We, it's a you fun gotta, you setup. Speak, you got to speak right into it. Okay. Get right into it. How am I doing? You're doing great. Awesome. Okay. So uh, we're very proud of, of USNI Press, the Naval Institute Press. Um, and uh, we were uh, we asked Megan to come, come up here to preview basically the spring catalog and uh, other offerings that are happening uh, with the, the press. So, Megan, thanks for coming to the Proceedings Podcast. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I am just going to talk a little bit about what's upcoming in our spring catalog. So, uh, upcoming this spring, we have, I brought a couple advanced readers copies just to give a little preview. So, here we go. Seven at Santa Cruz, The Life of Fighter Ace, Swede Vitasa. It's a riveting biography uh, that details how Swede became a naval he- hero at the Battle of Santa Cruz in World War II. It's the first extensive biography of Swede, and it's by Ted Edwards. It includes photos from Swede's personal archives, and it provides an up-close look at the Battle of Santa Cruz. This book's headed your way in June 2018, so look out for it. I love that cover photo yeah he isn't like it a fantastic real badass. Yeah. he was yeah awesome okay <laughs> so, we'll look forward to that one yeah we, and then we've got oh this one did not have an advanced readers copy so a large poster instead <laughs> uh combat, combat at close, at close quarters, quarters an okay. illustrated history of the u.s navy in the vietnam war edited by ed marolda oh, okay this so book. it's like apocalypse now fans would love this book right <laughs> maybe right? so maybe yeah. so riverine warfare good yeah. stuff So this book is an in-depth look at the U.S. Navy's role in the Vietnam War, featuring highly detailed photos, maps, and images that come from um, several Navy archives and personal collections. There are more than 200 images, so it's a big it's a big book. Not only is this a large poster, it is also a large trim book. It'll be nice for coffee tables and the likes. Hard co- um, hardcover or, or soft cover? Yeah, it'll be hard. All of these will actually be hardcover when they're originally printed. So nice. this one is, um, nice. I believe it's seven by ten. So it's a like a. That's a big book. Yeah, wow. it's a it's a big book, but it's going to have a lot of a lot of stuff going for it. So we're excited, and um, Edmarolda does a really great job of like highlighting the dedication and courage um, and sacrifice of Navy officers and um, sailors. During during the Vietnam War. Very so, cool. Headed out in April 2018. April, okay. So a little bit closer than June. Yes, mark your calendars. a couple months closer. Yeah, mark the calendars. <laughs> so we also have um, Beyond the Beach, uh, The Allied War Against France by Stephen Allen Bork. Um, it's an important rethinking of the Normandy war narrative. So um, Bork's groundbreaking research is the first time that the French perspective has been deeply explored in the English language. So French historians have been at this for a while, but Bork really um, brings this to light for British and American historians. Um, this book is in our History of Military Aviation series, which is edited by P.J. Springer. Um, other books in that series include The Origins of American uh, Strategic Bombing by Craig Morris and Air Power Applied, edited by um, John Andreas Olson. And this one is also out in april awesome yeah 
So it's a like really stunning uh, cover photograph there. So when it's in hardback and beautiful, um, it'll be worth worth picking up. Always. Yeah. Like every title. Oh, yes, Ward. Thanks. <laughs> so um, and then we have No Forgotten Fronts um, by Lisa Shapiro. It is based on an archive of thousands of original letters written by college students who served in World War II. Oh. Yeah. Um, at the beginning of World War II at San Diego State College, um, Dr. Lauren Post asked his students to write to him. Um, he compiled these letters into a newsletter and he sent them out um, to their friends, to their family members and to other um, students that were serving in the war. So um, Lisa Shapiro, the author, has extensively gone through this archive and combed through it and really um, taken some great detail and time to like weave together um, an American war story told through the letters of a college community. So it's a little bit different, um, but it's beautiful uh, and should be really, really eye-catching. So this one also out in April. So that's what we've got going down um, on the press. So we're uh, down there. We publish about uh, 90 books a year. So there's plenty of others to uh, get your hands on. And uh, yeah, we're excited. It'll be a fun spring. So how do people uh, that aren't members uh, find out about these books? And how could they get a hold of our catalog? Uh, the catalog is all available online, so www.usni.org slash Naval Institute Press. Um, on that front page, you can click on the catalog, and it will show you um, all 38 books that are new for the spring. Um, and if you are a member, members do receive a 40% discount on new books and 20% on backlist. So, Fantastic. Ward, I think they could pick up your book for 20% yeah, off. Yeah, so I got my royalty check yesterday. <laughs> $42, baby. Nice. This writing gig is awesome. <laughs> you might want to keep this day job with yeah. the podcast. Okay, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's that's for Ward's book uh, that came out in 2001 called Punk's War. Yes, it but they, it was republished, republished in 2014. Recently. Okay. Right, and that's the yeah. one that Megan's talking about. That's the uh, trade paperback size. Also available on Kindle. Oh man! Yeah, so yeah, um, a lot of our books are also available in ebook format. Yeah. Of my catalog, that's the only one that's available on Kindle. We just had a mic failure here. My, uh, Bill just knocked over. His <laughs> so, uh, as you said, you guys do ninety titles a year, we thereabouts. Do. Um, so, let's say I'm a historian or an academic or a, a, a novelist that has written has a manuscript that's a military. Uh, what's my first step to potentially uh, get published by the Naval Institute Press? I'll again plug the website. Um, all of the submission information is on the website. It will give you um, an email address to send um, editorial queries to. Those will probably land on the desk of an editorial assistant or of our editorial director, depending on the subject matter. Different editors deal with different subject matters. Um, and then they shuffle it around from there. But start with uh, the submission guidelines. I believe it tells you how to submit, what to submit, um, what information to include. So that's all right there on the website. USNI.org. Org and look at the www.usni because if you just type in usni.org, the page won't load. So you got to have the www there as yeah. well. I just I know how do I know this? Dot usni.org. If you end yes. up on the home page, because you're the director of outreach. Yeah. Right. And I go up there. I type in usni.org and it doesn't load. Yeah. There's um, a tab, a books tab. Right. Um, it's on our front. If you go to our home page, just click on the books vertical and yeah. it'll drive you to and there's a submissions guideline there submissions guidelines the catalog um also you guys have a separate social media presence from usni um so naval institute press 
on Twitter and Facebook. Where you just have on all Twitter. Kinds, or just on Twitter. Okay. So, uh, so follow you on Twitter and you have updates of things going on, author signings, yep. other current events, news. We uh, try to put up new book alerts on Tuesday, author events as they come in, reviews, uh, when a big publication reviews our books. Those hashtag are all found new there. book Tuesday. Uh, I haven't started the hashtag, but I could try it. Uh, like hashtag it. Friday Reads. Friday Reads. So, like it. Yeah. Yeah. We're um, there on Twitter at USNI Books. USNI Books. Okay, fantastic. Hey, Megan, talk about the uh, the upcoming uh, graphic novel content uh, that the, that the oh, press yeah. is coming out with. And uh, you guys have got a great new line of books. Uh, what's what's it called? And what's the uh, describe the uh, the character, if you will, or the logo for that? Okay, so the um, new imprint that we're starting in the fall um, is called Dead Reckoning, and it will be a graphic novel imprint uh, that will have a special focus on military history, military biography, and memoir, general general history, as well as tales of the high sea. Um, It will strike out to a new waters of a bold medium and tell the stories that no one else can. So I think uh, probably some of you follow the um, Naval History magazine, and in the back of the Naval History, they've been featuring um, a few small um, Yeah, for about uh, the snippets. last uh, six or eight months now, Naval History has, has had uh, called Acts of Valor, which are stories about Medal of Honor winners, U.S. Uh, Navy and Marine Corps uh, Medal of Honor winners. Recipients. Recipients, uh, sorry. Uh, and so those Medal of Honor stories have been told in a graphic novel style um yeah in many ways we we were looking for content that would connect with younger readers uh connect in a slightly different way tell a story in in a more uh pictorial manner than uh than a textual manner uh and and we found them to be very popular on uh, naval history magazine and the that that content is rolling into the Dead Reckoning right. book series. Yeah, so the Dead Reckoning um, uh, books will have its own uh, full-length works of um, graphic novel content. So there'll be um, books that are uh, based on like anthologies of um, stories about soldiers in different places or um, different time periods. And so it will be uh, mostly nonfiction. Um, I'm not sure there's any. There may just be one fiction in the pipeline, but those are all things things that are that are headed our way we're not ready to announce uh the official titles that will come out in the fall but i'll be more than happy to um when we're ready for that we're hitting spring first and when we hit fall um we're really excited about it and so those books will be coming all out in september so keep your eyes open for the fall catalog and this is a serious medium this is not comic books these are graphic right. novels yeah so we hope that um they will really introduce a new readers to um history and to um just just you know grab a hold of um new readers and and new new people that don't explore mediums um such as like lengthy maybe like lengthy articles or research papers but instead they'll be able to turn to a very visual medium um and really connect to it in that way so we're really excited fantastic very exciting so thanks for coming by megan appreciate yeah, it thank you guys all right. Well, that wraps up the uh, podcast. I think this is our 20th episode. Our mm-hmm. hold on. 18th, 18th episode. Yeah. I, yeah. I think we're at 19 or 20. I'm okay. 
I'm just showing 18. Ward's going to edit that out. No, I'm not. Anyway, we're wrapping up uh, we're this week's the people podcast. This is the raw. Yeah, it's like deal. 90 degrees in Ward's office yeah. here on a February afternoon. It's, and we're uh, complaining? It's, it's rather warm. Talk to me this uh, weekend when it's like 20 just, and raining. I just wanted to be 50 or 150 in July, yeah. you know, no, that's uh, which is what the trend would be like. Um, so next week, the March issue of uh, Proceedings will be out. And the March-April issue of uh, Naval History Magazine will be out. Uh, They'll be online and in your mailboxes. And uh, uh, don't forget, victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute.